Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are sovereign and not us, that you're the one in control of all the details. Because if it was, if it was us, um, we know everything would go bad. And uh, yes, thank you, O oh Lord, that you're the one that's going to be leading this message right now because it's your word being preached. It's because your spirit work talking in our hearts right now. Thank you. We're grateful, Lord, because we're coming at your feet to, be, to hear you, not a man. We don't want to rely on what I have to say. We want to hear what you had to say. Father, thank you that you preserved your word through all those generations, through much blood and sacrifice and death, so we can have it in our hands now. We're grateful that your spirit illuminates us and teaches us all things, because for the rest of the world, this word is veiled. They, they come against it as a stumbling block, but for us, it is Christ being revealed to us more and more. It is knowing you greater and greater. It's beautiful beyond compare. And we know it's not of us, it's of you, Lord. You love us, and so we love you in return. Yes, we come before you right now asking that you would leave a little drop of truth in us that will grow during the week as we come to the words of Christ himself. God made flesh, he who walked among us, and we, we want to hear what he had to say. Please let us really grab hold of, be transformed by, and be moved by his words today, Lord. Not just a good sermon. Honestly, who cares about a good sermon? What we want is to be transformed by your word right now, Lord. And so I, I come desperately asking you to just lead as you see fit. And uh, yeah, move my mouth and close my mouth whenever you want, Lord. But may Jesus be heard this morning. That is my prayer in his name. Amen. Permit me, if you will, to ask you to use your uh, sanctified imagination, your creativity to the glory of God. Let's transport ourselves back in time, about 2,000 years. Put ourselves in the shoes of 12 men about to eat the Passover with their rabbi, who might just be the Messiah. But the problem is he's been saying some weird stuff lately. Stuff about being handed over to the Gentiles to be killed. Or things about one of them betraying him even. And then one of them leaving. He gave the bread and said that was his body being given. He gave the cup saying that was his blood being shed for a new covenant. He keeps talking about dying. We invested three and a half years of our lives for what we thought was the Messiah was going to conquer and take over and bring Israel back into glory. And he's talking about going to die. Could you feel the, in the atmosphere, the fear, the anxieties, the worries? What did we give our lives to right now? What's going on? That's the context of what is called the uproom discourse from John 14 all the way 17 when Jesus prays. It's in that context that Jesus will give them his last words to his disciples. That's what we want to look at. Not all those chapters. Maybe at some point we'll get through more of them in the future, but for now we're going to focus on the introduction, if you will, the first couple of words of what Christ said, in which we find those amazing words of his, I am the way. Now, they're not just taken apart by themselves. These words were saying in context. And in that context, he's going to keep coming again and again about the idea of believing in him because he is the way, which is why I gave it a, a second title, Believe Me. I am the way, believe me. That is found in John 14, verse 1 to 14, which will be your text for this morning for some of you who want to turn. 
But before we even dare to approach that text, I think we have to put on certain glasses, even those who don't need them. We need a certain perspective when we come to this text, and I'd say even the Gospels themselves. Now, on one side, one lens is a bit more important than the other. It's the dominant eye, if you will. And that lens is given to us by John himself. When chapter 20, verse 31, he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, there you go. Things written are not just his words, but all four Gospels. That's why they exist. That's why they tell us about everything Jesus did, the miracles, his words, his parables, they all have that one point in common. They want to show to us that he is the long-awaited Messiah, that he is God with us, that he is the servant, serving, suffering servant. I know he's going to mix. Suffering servant that was promised for us. And by believing in him, we could have eternal life. That lens, like I said, is so important because once you move it, you skewed your view. You change your perspective and you come to the gospel in a whole other way that shouldn't be. Right? We come to these books and we start seeing them as a how-to book. How to make your own miracles. How to follow Jesus your own way. How to have good moral teachings. No, that's not the point. John is giving us the point. All of this to show us who Jesus is and why believing in him will give us eternal life. The second lens is just as important as well. And that's the context in which we are in. This passage before us, like I said, is Jesus with his 11 apostles. And what he's teaching, he's teaching specifically for them. And that's important. Because even though once in a while he'll talk about believers in general, that includes us, most of it is to them. We're going to permit ourselves once in a while to take some of his words and bring it here in Snowden 2021, but we can't forget that he's talking to the 11, preparing them for the great ministry that they'll have to do in the future. Again, losing that perspective will make it so we kidnap these words and make it our own where we shouldn't. So that's also important. Now with these glasses on our face, we can finally attack the text before us and start with verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. We're going to cut this verse in two to really understand it. He starts by talking about their troubled hearts, or what it literally means to shake back and forth. Were they literally trembling? I don't know. But what's for sure, like I said, there's definitely a sense of anxiety, of fear, of deep question in their hearts, what is going on? And the remedy for that is to believe in God, but don't miss believe also in me in the sense of just as equally as you believe in God. That's a bombshell. For their Jewish mind, that is a bombshell. You're telling us that the belief we have in Yahweh, the one true God, should also be for you? Whoa which is why Jesus will need to elaborate on this as he goes along. But this is still amazing uh, remedy even for us here in 2021. Because even though these words are given to them for their specific situation, this great fear going on when Christ will leave to die and then leave for good, and they'll be left to themselves with the help of the Holy Spirit, of course, after that. But there's still a sense where Paul will pick up on that, and many times in his epistles, we'll talk about this kind of thing. Like we can see in Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, he says, Do not be anxious, huh, interesting, about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let's stop here for a second. So here's the remedy, to pray, to supplicate, but don't miss with thanksgiving. 
And like we saw last time together, Thanksgiving is not just thanking God for what he did. It's bringing our thoughts back to who he is. Recognizing the kind of God that does these things. So he's saying kind of the same thing as Jesus says, believe in God. He adds, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't miss that, right? You go to God, and what does he do? He brings you to Christ. Believe in God and believe in me also. Here's Paul saying that's the remedy for all things. That's the kind of trust that we need to make it in our trouble, anxious reality. But like I said, he needs to elaborate on this. It's an amazing bomb he just laid in their hands. He needs to help them understand it. And verse 2 to 4 is just the beginning of it when he focuses on something that's really encouraging. He's going to start by saying, In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Here's the thing. This is the first time Jesus said that. From the beginning, from John 6, 62, he's saying that he's going and nobody can follow him. We see it even clearer in chapter 7 of John, verse 33 and 34, when he says, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where, I'm, where I am, you cannot come. Now you might say, well, yes, of course, he's talking to everybody. Not everybody are believers. The problem is in John 13, with the 11, he's going to say the same thing. I'm going and you can't follow me. It's in that context that Peter says, I'm going to follow you even unto death. And he's told that, no, you're going to deny me. But he, up to this point, he's saying, I'm going and you can't follow me. Now he's saying, I'm going and preparing a place for you. And it's kind of cryptic. It's veil. In the Father's house are many rooms. Some translations will say mansions. The problem is, even though that Greek word can be translated by mansions, it's used again by Jesus in verse 23. And if you look at it, if, for those who have your Bibles open, you'll see that he talks about the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, the same word. So it's not about the idea of having bigger mansions or some having greater mansions because of how much they did. It's about, about being with the Father. That's the thing, dwelling with God as the Spirit dwells in us now. But again, put yourself in that Jewish mindset. What is the house of God? The temple. Yeah, there's many rooms in there, but we don't go live in there. The Levite may live there, but we don't. What are you talking about, Jesus? What do you mean you have a, a place prepared and it's the Father's house and you're going to build it? What, you're going to make the bigger temple? Is that what you meant, that you're going to destroy it and rebuild it so we can all live in the temple? What are you saying? Do you, you see how this could leave them with a few questions for these Jewish believers? And he continues by saying, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, that's even more cryptic and veil. You were saying that you're leaving, and we can't follow you. Then you said you're leaving and preparing a place, and now you're talking about coming back to get us so we can be with you. W what do you mean, Jesus? And that's the kind of question we should be asking right now. What is he talking about? When he says he's going to come again, is he talking about his second coming? Possibly. But here's the problem. He also says, I will take you to myself, talking specifically to these 12, to these 11. Are they still around now? Well, well no, they're not around now, so he went to get them before. 
So it could be a mix between the fact that, yes, he's fucking coming when he's going to take the church with him and the fact that throughout the ages he keeps taking the dead believers to himself in the place of waiting. Makes sense. But why is it taking so long to prepare a place? When you consider it is God Almighty who can speak and everything is out of nothing. It's because we have to remember who he's talking to right now again. Talking to the 11 before the cross. He's going to prepare a place in the sense that he's going to die to make that place possible. He's going to die to rip the veil so they can enter into that holy of holy, that presence of God themselves. That's how he's going to go to prepare a place. He's going to die. That's what he's going to get to as he moves along, as we will see together. So it's not about the fact that Jesus is building some kind of special place for us, slowly, brick by brick. He's God. But it's about that he's telling the disciples I'm going to die to make this possible for you guys. And then he says this to close up that part of the discussion. And you know the way to where I'm going. Well, no, they don't. Up to this point, they don't even know where he's going. How can they understand what he's saying right now? Well, I believe that Jesus is, is saying that to get them to go deeper into what he has to say. Remember, his point is to get them to believe in him as they believe in God. So he's going to bring them in to deeper reflection to really make sense of who he is. That's why he leaves them with such a clickbait type of question to bring them into, you need to know more of this. You need to ask questions about this. That's why from 5 to 11, it's this interchange between him and some of the disciples asking questions, trying to figure it out. That's a good thing to ask questions. So yes, Thomas will ask, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Again, let's not be in 2021 right now. Let's be with them in their shoes. It's true. We don't understand where you're going. How can we even know how we get there? Again, think about it. For some time he's been saying, I'm going and you can't follow me. Then he said, I'm going so I can prepare a place. Then he said, I'm going to get you. But he also said there's a way to go. Wait, which one is it? You come to get us, we walk away. Which one is it, Jesus? How can we understand what you're saying? Good question, Thomas. Let me help you figure it out. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's what we call a theological bomb exploding all over the room. And we're going to start picking up all those pieces one at a time. I am the way. What does he mean by that? Well, what he doesn't mean is that he's the moral way. Follow his example, you get to heaven. No. He's not the Gnostic way. From him, you get to higher and greater divinities. No. He's not even the mystical way. Walk with Jesus and you get to heaven. No. He's talking about his life, death, and resurrection. That's how he's the way. He's talking about the fact that he came to be the better Adam in the garden, the better Israel in the desert, the obedient son that commits no sin but then becomes sin for us, dying on the cross in our place, taking the cup of wrath for us, but then also resurrecting for our justification. That's how he becomes the way, by his life, death, and resurrection. He's also the truth, because he came to reveal the Father who is truth, because all he spoke was absolute imperfect truth, even when nobody wanted to hear it and many resisted it. And he's the life because he has life in himself like the Father does, and he can give it to all who come to him. Because he lays down his life 
so that all who come to him can have abundant or eternal life. That's how he's the way, the truth, and the life. And that's why he can say it's such an exclusive, hated to in our days type of term by saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. And that little word through talks about getting to the other side successfully. You could try many ways to go to God, but only one will succeed, and that's his life, death, and resurrection, and putting our faith in that. But again, it's such an amazing, explosive theological bomb right now. He needs to go into deeper explanation for his poor little disciples, right? And for ourselves too. So he says, if you had known me, let's stop here for an instant. The word here is actually experientially known. If you, not just I see that there's a Jesus there. I mean, I talked with the rabbi. He taught me some things. Really known who I was. You would have known, perceived my father also. Truly knowing who Christ was would be, we understand you've come to reveal the father. You'd be expressed image of the father if they would have known experienced Jesus. They could have perceived God. It's a rebuke. It's a rebuke from their Lord. Gentle rebuke from Mike and Mile Jesus. But he doesn't just stay on the rebuke. I love that. There's grace also because he says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. From this moment, this conversation we're having, it's going to last a few chapters. My return in 40 days with you, from now on, you do know, experience him, God. You have seen, discerned God. So even though in a sense he's saying you haven't perceived him yet, it's trying to work. This conversation is going to help you to perceive, to discern, to recognize that I've sent from the Father, that I'm sent to be the Savior, that I'm Emmanuel, God with you. But, of course, uh, there's still more questions, right? Phyllis said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. We have to understand that when he's asking him to show the Father, he's really talking about manifest God, demonstrate God to us. It's like the Pharisees when they said, show us a sign from heaven. This is in the context where he's healing lepers, resurrecting the dead, but he's saying, no, show us a sign from heaven. You know when Moses went up the mountain and it shook and it was fire and he received the law hidden, written by the hand of God or when he saw the glory of God? Do that kind of stuff. Oh, you know how Isaiah saw God and the temple was shaking? Or even Ezekiel, man, he saw some weird stuff. Can you show some of that? That's what Philip is saying here. Show us something amazing to prove that you're the Father. We've seen a lot of healing and miracles from you, but you know something that's really divine, if you will. Some have suggested maybe, maybe, Peter, James, and John talked about the Mount of Transfiguration already. Remember that mount where Jesus removed the veil for an instant? and they got to see a glimpse of his glory. They heard the Father speaking. They were on the floor trembling. And Jesus said, don't tell anyone. Maybe they mentioned it. And maybe Philip saying, you know what you show them? Could you see it? Could we see it too, please? Possibly. Maybe not. But it's still a focus on show us something. Manifest something. Can we bring this in 2021 right now and say that sometimes we have that same kind of problem? Show us, Lord right? Show me you love me. Let me hear your voice right now. We forget that it's a walk of faith, not of sight. 
we forgot that faith is things unseen and believed in and trusted in. We forget that true faith is not about seeing great things. It's about believing in great things and walking that kind of trust. So we don't want to find the same trap that Philip does. But that's okay because the Lord is amazing. He's going to take that request and use it because that's what he wanted to get into that deeper place of showing them why to believe in him as they believe in God. He says, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That's some amazing words. We're going to break it down into three pieces this time. Let's begin with, I have been with you so long. They walked with him three and a half years. They saw some amazing things, heard amazing things. Again, can we bring this to 2021 now? I'm sure a lot of you have been a believer for a long time. For me, in November, we 28 years. I've been with him a long time. Why do I still question? Why do I still doubt? Why do I still ask him to show me stuff? He then says, whoever has seen me, well, now, Martin, I've never saw Jesus. I didn't see no vision, no dream. I definitely wasn't there 2,000 years ago. I'm not that old. But here's the thing. If you're a believer right now, you have seen him. Because Paul says to the Corinthians that God opens our eyes, shines the light on Christ, removes the veil, that's salvation. By faith, you do see him. So, yeah, we've also seen Christ in that sense. You saw him as the, the Savior and the Lord of your life, where before you didn't, where the rest of the world does not, and mock and ridicule, we do see him. So that last part, how can you say, show us the Father? That's a nice and gentle rebuke to them and to us. Let's start with them, because this isn't the first time that Jesus needs to rebuke them, needs to correct them. Think about that moment when he tells them to not uh, trust in the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they think, well, it's about the bread, right? Ooh, bad answer. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Same word again. Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand, again, knowledge word, that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And yes, after that, they do get it. But clearly, they don't get everything, right? That's why they have this conversation with Jesus right now. That's why he saw fit to have this little discourse in the upper room with them before he left because they needed to be reminded and taught these things, even though they've been with him for three and a half years, hearing his teachings, some that are not even in Scripture right now. But like I said, we shouldn't be too quick to judge them because we also need that gentle rebuke once in a while, right? Think of the many times that Paul has to rebuke the Galatian churches or the Corinthian church and so forth and so on because they forgot what the gospel was for a moment. Or think about the book of Hebrews, where he says, about this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. 
For everyone who, has, who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the, the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Could these words be used for us? I mean, isn't Christianity about growing and maturing to the stature of Christ? Oh, oh yeah, sometimes we get held bad a few courses, right? It happens, but there's still supposed to be a growing process, a maturing process. More we feed on the word and more we're growing. More we're applying the word, more we're growing. So, yes, this rebuke should also be for us. We've been with him for so long. We've seen him. So, no, we shouldn't need to have demonstrations. We should just be obeying. And Jesus will continue his teaching process. Do you not believe, here's that word again, right? Believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me. That mutual indwelling that it speaks of where there is one God, but yet it's the Father and the Son. We, we see it even clearer in Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seat the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, separate. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So he's at the right hand, he's also in God. He, he's also the one who is in God and came to reveal God. So, yeah, we, we, we get it, even though we don't get it, this mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son, and how both are one, but both are separate. My mind just got blown. But he doesn't want just to believe that because he says that. That's why he says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. I'm not just saying it like anybody else can say, I'm a little God. I am God himself. I'm Jesus. Listen to me. No, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And we need to stop here for a second and really camp on that word because it will continue as we move along. Even when he gets the, the application, verse 12 to, 13, to 14, he's going to really lay into these works. If we don't understand what he means here in the foundation, we're going to get off track. But first, a glass of water. So what does he mean by his works? How can the Father be doing the work if it was Christ doing them? How can it be of the Father? Well, he explains a little bit before that in John 5. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than, than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, huh, the works that the Father gave me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. They bear witness that he sent them because they're the works that God has preordained. Right? The Old Testament giving us types and shadows and prophecies of specific works that Jesus was meant to do. Think of the sacrificial system. Think about the Day of Atonement, the two goats. One will be sacrificed, one will be the scapegoat. Jesus is both. And think about Elijah and Elisha. Their ministry was a type and shadow of Jesus' ministry because many of their miracles, he did as well. But think also all those prophecies. huh? When the Messiah comes, he's going to have the, the lepers healed. The lame will walk. The blind will see. The dead will raise. They're specific works, though. They're not just miracles for miracles' sake. Because anybody can do powerful works by the help of the devil. No, they're specifically designed and prepared, preordained by the Father. That's what he means by his works. And that's important for us. 
That's important for us to understand what he means by works when we move along. He's talking about specific preordained work that prove he was son of the Father because in the Old Testament, the Father kept telling us he's going to do these specific works hundreds and thousands of years before. So it's not just works for work's sake. It's the Father's work in that sense. But I'm leaning into this because it's not just about miracles themselves. We see in the book of John over and over again, Jesus doing amazing miracles, people coming to him, and then commentary, sometimes from John saying how he didn't put any trust in that kind of faith because they were putting their faith in the miracles. Or he will rebuke those who come after the, the loaves because they were looking for miracles and food and not the Messiah. So it's not just works for works' sake. We get an even greater example with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember when this rich man, recognizing that his brothers can come here with him in this place of suffering, asked if Lazarus could go and warn them. This is the answer he gets. Please pay attention. He said to him, if you do not hear, understand, perceive Moses and the prophets who spoke, of course, of the Messiah, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. It's not just a miracle for miracle's sake. It's not just a work for work's sake. It's specific works that hit at specific things promised so we can recognize that he is truly the Messiah. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's why after that he can say, believe me. Eh? That's why it's in my title. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Again, it's not the works for the works' sake. It's because of what they represent, of how they were prepared and prophesied many hundreds of years before. That's the works themselves. That's what he's getting at. That's what he's saying. If you have trouble with this idea of believing in me as you believe in the Father, as I'm trying to show you, I have come to reveal the Father because the works I do, they're exactly what he said I would do. Proving that I am Emmanuel, God with you. Hopefully, this is getting in our mind because it's important. Because now he's going to get to the application in verse 12 to 14. He's going to say, truly, truly, amen, amen, this is important. He's going to talk about works. He's going to talk about prayer. Let's start with the works. I say to you, whoever believes in me, oh, wait, wait a second. Whoever believes, wait, wouldn't that be us too? Yeah, right? Whoever believes in him, will be all believers for 2,000 years. So he's talking to us right now. Hopefully your ears are picking up right now. You want to pay attention to what he's saying. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Oh, please don't miss that last part. That I do. Again, not just works for works' sake. Specifically, preordained, prepared and prophesied works. Easy to say. That's what Jesus came to do. That's the works that we're also going to do. Do we have also preordained work for us? Oh, according to Ephesians 2, we do. We have good works that were prepared for us by the Father. According to Corinthians also, we have gifts given to us by the Spirit for the edifying of the body, specific to us. So yes, there's also works that we can do just like Christ had preordained work for him. But then he moves on. And greater works than these will he do. Oh, how many people have taken that one phrase and ran with it and then a bunch of weird stuff. That's not what Jesus was saying. And I would dare say this honors the words of our Lord because he's saying it in a context right now. He's not just saying it out of the blue. He's saying out something he's been building and building 
So out of respect for him and honor for our Lord, we want to understand what he's saying in its context. So what does he mean by greater works? Well, again, let's go with the uh, what does he not mean? Well, it doesn't mean quality. You can't resurrect a better dead guy. You can't heal somebody more than 100%. They don't start having superpowers afterwards. Healing is healing. So it's not quality. What about quantity, Martin? Good question. Well, again, if the works are not just works for work's sake, but specifically preordained, then is it really about doing more of that or doing specific ones? Well, it's about the specific ones. So what's left? What about greater impact? What about the fact that Jesus was able to impact 11 men? And even to a sense, 120. And we could go all to 500, according to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But 500 men, compared to how these, will impact hundreds of thousands, even millions of people. Greater work. Greater impact. But is that the only thing that Jesus means here? Now, this second version of greater does not come from me. All credit to Mr. D.A. Carson. He's the one that showed me these things. It's amazing. But... Uh, he points to that last little phrase, because I'm going to the Father. You understand that little clause, right? Because. The, the works will be greater because I'm going to the Father. Now, yes, it includes the fact that him going to the Father means sending the Spirit to indwell us with the gifts of the Spirit, to lead us in the good works we're meant to do. But there's something else going on here. Him going back to the Father means him going back to exaltation. Now, when you realize that Christ was the veiled Messiah in the Old Testament, promised but mysterious, and even when he was on earth, he was still veiled in human flesh. He was still limited in that sense. But now that he's resurrected, he's glorified, magnified, and exalted. He's greater at this point. Because he's going to the Father He's no longer the one who's about to die. He's the one who's lifted up and where all knees will bow and all tongues will confess that he is Lord. So would it be also greater because our Lord is now in the greatest place? I think so. I think, yes, it's a greater impact. The church is everywhere around the world, but it's also greater because our Lord is no more veiled. Not in humanity, not in mystery, but in complete exaltation now. In that sense, it's greater works because the God is greater. Our Lord is now in a greater place. So, we see that kind of reasoning when he talks about John the Baptist. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, right? In the old covenant, there's nobody greater than the John the Baptist. He is the prophet that led the way for the Messiah. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Again, is it just that they do greater works, they'll do greater miracles, or they're part of a greater covenant, a greater kingdom, serving not the promised Messiah, but the glorified Messiah? Again, I think the idea is greater in the sense that Christ is now risen, glorified, and exalted. Feel free to disagree, but... Do not miss the fact that from the beginning, Christ is doing what? Pointing his disciples to the fact that they need to believe in him at equal footings as believing in the great God, Yahweh, the glorified, transcendent, amazing God he is. Now, we can move on 
to pray. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Again, we're going to break down this little, phrase, this little verse in two. Asking in his name, what does that mean? Does that mean if you tack on his name, you'll get uh, assured prayers? It's the stamp you put on the envelope, make sure it gets there? Absolutely not. No, praying in his name has two aspects to it. His work and his will. His work in a sense, it's his death that makes it possible for us to come to the Father. He broke the veil so we can enter the throne of grace, as Hebrews tells us. But his will, as 1 John tells us, in the sense that we pray according to his will, as he did also. As he surrendered fully and said, not my will, but yours be done. And all he prayed and all he did and all he said was the Father's will. That's why he was answered in all prayers. That's why he can say with boldness even, I know you're going to answer me. Not because he's so amazing, because he was praying specifically according to the Father's will. So praying in his name is praying in his work and according to his will. And you see it when he says that, here's the reason, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Again, it's about God. It's about lifting him up. Huh? It's about doing the works he's ordained, not the ones I want to do. So when he finally says, to close it all up, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You cannot just take the anything and say, well, there you go. It's a promise. It's a blank check. Here's the problem. He's been spending verse after verse filling up that check, clearly, specifically, and detailed. You can't take it as a blank check anymore. This is the exclamation mark on everything he's been saying for the disciples. You can't run with the exclamation mark. You got to take the whole thing he's been saying. Remember, he's talking to disciples who are fearful right now, telling them that he's leaving. He'll come back, but then he's going to leave for good. They've been spending three and a half years where they weren't being able to do anything. God does amazing through, things through him, but now he's going to be gone. They need to be reassured that prayer is now their means, not the Messiah that's next to them. They need to be assured that they can come and pray and be certain that he will answer according to God's will and for God's glory, of course. So yes, let us pray. Let us certainly pray so we may believe in God and trust him. Trust the one who sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners and rebels and enemies. That he who started this good work will finish it that he works in us all things that are pleasing to him, that he's the one that keeps us from falling away. Yes, let us pray. Pray that and supplicate and, and cry out to God with groans and cast our cares upon him because we know he cares for us with the emphasis on he cares for us, right? With thanksgiving, with praise, with focus on him not trying to get him to do stuff for us. Prove your love to me, Lord. No. I want to know you, therefore I can trust you. Yes, let us pray that he will capture our minds and hearts and bring him to that place that he's prepared for us. So our minds can be there realizing that we are certain, assured that we will be with him soon, very soon, that we are, present tense, citizens of heaven. So that when we are here now, we're not trying to build our kingdom and do great things for ourselves, but we're trying to serve a great God instead through our works and our prayers. So yes, by focusing on God, let us close 
in prayer right now. Lord, honestly, no words can express how magnificent and beautiful and great you are. And there is even a sense where this sermon has nothing really to compare it to your very word. So I do pray instead that my brothers and sisters will be in your word way more than thinking of this sermon. They would read for themselves these incredible words of Jesus and let them sink in and transform them, be renewed by the word, oh Lord. We, we get jostled, Lord. Back and forth, we, we have a lot of troubles and we trouble ourselves way too much. We let our minds run with much anxiety about so many things that just don't matter. Lord, capture our minds and bring it back to that place where you are because we are right now citizens of heaven. The invisible world is reality to us. Help us to live by faith, to trust and believe in you and believe in your son. You showed your love already. You crucified your own son to save us. What more can we ever ask for and need? You gave us your word, so even now, 2,000 years later, we can still hear about it and see Jesus in faith. What else could we really ask of you? Lord, forgive us for our doubts and questions. Thank you for your forgiveness and your patience with us and for your spirit, God Almighty, living inside of us. Thank you. And continue, please, to lead us by faith, to believe in you, to believe in him, and to do the, way, the works that really show how great you are mighty God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.